friends, welcome. This is it. We have over a decade of episodes unpacking stories and life to help you discover your purpose, your divine design, and what you are wired to do. This is Patty Lynn Wyatt. Please subscribe on YouTube or subscribe to Girlfriend It so we can be in it together. Well, welcome, welcome. This is Patty Lynn Wyatt, and I will be your host today. And our guest today is an internationally renowned scholar and teacher. She is the author of numerous books, including her latest release, The Difficult Words of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide to His Most Perplexing Teachings. And she's also the co-editor of the Jewish Annotated New Testament. So welcome, Dr. Levine. How are you today? Well, I'm fine, Patty. It's it's nice to talk to you. And, you know, as soon as you begin with something like Dr. Levine, scholar, people are immediately going to shut off and think, oh, my God, it's a university. I don't want them to think that. It's like I'm just a person who happens to know a whole lot about Jesus and who cares a whole lot, too. Well, that's good. I know you had mentioned when I was calling you Dr. Levine, you were saying, just call me AJ which uh, I, I do appreciate that. I have, I actually have several acquaintances that um, you, you must call them doctor. And uh, I, I don't know how I feel about that. You know, it's like, but you're still, you're still just my friend. And I love that you went and got your PhD, but <laughs> yeah. oh, I don't know. That sounded really judgy. So, you know, but you uh, you have been writing numerous books, and I want to dive into some of this deep stuff in this episode. But first, I have to ask you, how many cups of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice do you have each morning to get all this stuff done? <laughs> That's a fair question. Um, I, I, I was drinking so much caffeine that my cardiologist actually told me to cut back. He said, this is not good for you. So I drink two cups of fully loaded coffee in the morning, and then I drink about eight or nine cups of decaf through the rest of the day. Oh, really? You you actually had someone say, okay. It's too much. Off. Too much. Listen, I'm old, right? And and if, if a medical <laughs> professional says to me, you probably ought not to be doing this, I'm, I'm inclined to take that comment seriously. <laughs> So were you having any like results from drinking this, this, all this coffee? Like, well, what was- at one point my hands started to shake and I thought, oh, this really doesn't look good. Um, and that's how I found out I was over caffeinating myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are you an early bird or a night owl? I am an early bird. I'm usually up around 4.30 or 5.00. Um, because particularly since COVID, I got worried that I wasn't, I wasn't in my office, which meant I wasn't climbing stairs. And the only exercise I was getting was walking the dog. Um, so my daughter, God bless my daughter. She's fabulous. She bought me a Fitbit and she said, I expect you to do 10,000 steps a day. So I get up in the morning and I jog in place or I I walk on the treadmill and I get my 10,000 steps. And that's how I start the day. You're silent. That sounds... Like, was that a bad thing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge advocate of working out. I don't know how people don't because it really, it does get me going. But I do want to know, I always hear the 10,000 steps. How many miles? Because I do everything by how many miles I put in. Do you know how many miles 10,000 steps I don't know, but I'm going to look at my Fitbit right now and tell you where I am (laughs) because it tells me. So, yeah. 
Here I am at 11,670 steps, which equates to 6.48 miles. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. But I can also tell uh, you how many calories I burned, but that's probably too much information. <laughs> TMI, AJ, TMI. That's right. Uh, yeah, I, I did have a Fitbit for a little while there, but um, I wouldn't say that I'm OCD, but the I started looking at all those calories and my input and then how many calories because then you can go to Chili's and figure out oh I'm eating 2400 calories that means I have to do you know this many more steps to burn this off and I thought I, I don't need that with my brain the way <laughs> the way I handle life there's something else <laughs> about walking in place at least for me um, so I am an academic, right? I do admit to that, which means I read for a living and I write for a living. And consequently, it's actually very hard for me to read novels because I start underlining and I start fixing the grammar. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, why do you have so many words here? Can't you just get to the point um, where this is boring? So um, it, when I walk, I listen to books on tape and that's how I can get the pleasure of literature mm. uh, because I can't do it from reading. And I know that if, if, I, if my mind goes somewhere else, I can always rewind. Um, so I listen to not I listen to mystery novels. I listen to short stories. I listen to podcasts like yours, um, but mostly books because that's my entertainment value. And if I want to get to the end of the question and it's another five minutes of walking the, the chapter, I'll get to the end of the chapter. And that's that's my incentive. So I do uh, it. For that that's really good insight. There was a few things that you said that I I found fascinating because I'm curious as we get older, like did you always start picking out the grammatical errors and underlining when you were reading novels for fun? Uh, <laughs> because I do that with so I'm a a trainer and a consultant uh, for organizations and uh, Fortune 500 companies, and I love. I absolutely love doing what I do. But what happens is when my kids come to me and they're telling me something, I start picking the same, I, I start giving them the same guidance as if I'm coaching them for for performance to, to get better results. You know, I start saying things like, so what did you learn from that? And what area would you change if you were to have to do this differently? And how could you better perform if you, and I get that, look of don't cycle babble me mom and I it's very irritating to them so I'm I just I don't remember always being that way so I'm curious were you did you always underline your novels uh, well yes I mean let's go back to C. Dick C. Jane and I'm thinking that could probably be a semicolon rather than a period it would make the grammar <laughs> more interesting um it, so um, did I do I correct my children's grammar? Uh, my children have been so well trained that at least in front of me, they tend not to make grammatical errors. Um, but, you know, you learn. I was I was so well parented. I had fabulous parents. Um, and I, as sticklers as they were, if they would check my homework, then they would let me know something was wrong. But they weren't on me every single minute saying, you know, how, do, do, could you do better here? Could you you know, wh what else did you do? However, my mother would say to me if on occasion when I would bring home a paper and it would be marked 100, I was one of those kids who was really good in school. And my mother would look at me and she'd smile and she'd have this twinkle in her eye. And she said, and why didn't you get 101? Uh, <laughs> and I think well, that's, that's actually pretty good um, because it's setting the bar really high. You know, you're good at what you do. Don't ride on that. 
you know, you can, if you can get by, don't just get by, really yeah. do the work and then you'll have something fabulous at the end, which actually she said, making a segue to what I know about, um, it, you know, it brings us back to something like the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, be perfect. Um, you know, so if you mess up, you, you've got mechanisms to go fix the mess, but why not set the bar really high? I think that's splendid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that is really, really good insight. And how many, how many kids do you have? I have two children, um, two. both, both of, both of whom are out of the house and both of whom are financially independent. Rah! You know, it <laughs> happen. Because uh, you set the bar high, right? Yeah. You, you, <laughs> you didn't yes. allow them to, to live in your basement. And okay, so you are a professor at Vanderbilt University. You've done over 500 programs for churches and seminaries on the Bible, Christian-Jewish relations, religion, gender, and sexuality across the globe, teaching all of this. And I, I wanna circle back to some of this, especially the sexuality. Uh, but first, I want to chat about your new book, The Difficult Words of Jesus. And you're known for taking the difficult, crazy pieces of scripture. Uh, where many of us might scratch our head and find it tricky to, to wrap our minds around. And I, I want to dive into the first one that you talk about in your book in, in Luke, where Jesus instructs the disciples to hate members of their own families. And though we are told in Exodus, you know, honor thy father and thy mother. And I know uh, I've seen on like atheist websites, even where they take this as a contradiction right. and it's really not. And, and you have such a beautiful way of unpacking this. So unpack some of this for us, please. Well, first of all, um, for those various um, detractor websites, uh, whether they're anti-Christian or whether they're atheist, um, I, I think that's it's basically a waste of time. Um, yeah, you can find contradictions in pretty much everything. You can find contradictions in your own life, right? Yeah. Um, it, that doesn't make you incoherent. It just makes you human. Um, and the other thing about the Bible is it's not a one-size-fits-all document, which is why Jesus says to, uh, you know, a rich guy, sell all you have and give to the poor. Mary and Martha, you know, hang on to the house. So um, it, it, we figure out what the messages are to each individual. Um, and when Jesus speaks, and he's much like the, the prophets of Israel, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, um, he's not going to say, please do this. It would be a nice thing to do because nobody's going to pay attention. Right. So mm -hmm. you have to use some sort of heightened rhetoric to get people's attention. What does this mean? And one of the really interesting things that Jesus does, at least I think it's interesting, is he setting up what we might call a, a new family. Anthropologists call this fictive kinship, which is just a fancy way of saying your family is not only the family into which you were born or the family into which you married, but there's this new family configuration uh, that we might call the family of faith. So that um, first time in Mark, um, and Matthew replays this scene, uh, Jesus, Jesus' natal family, the mother and the brothers and the sisters who were cousins if you're Catholic, but it, it, it works for me either way. Um, <laughs> you know, um, they, they, they come to him and they want to take him away because he's, he's performing exorcisms and people think he's in cahoots with the devil and others think he's insane and they're worried about him. So it's like, dear, dear son, you know, let's go back home and we'll talk about this. Um, so Jesus is teaching inside a house and he gets this message. Your mother and your brothers and sisters are waiting outside. They want to talk to you. 
And Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? And he looks around at the people sitting by him and he says, here are my mother and brothers and sisters. Those who do the will of, of the father are my mothers and brothers and sisters. And he's saying, listen, if you follow me, that will probably cause disruption in the family. And we know that even in contemporary society, if you change your religion, right? The parents are thinking you, you've just betrayed me. You've betrayed the religious training that we've given you and so on. Um, and it will look to the outside as if you actually hate your parents. It's that heightened rhetoric. How important is it to follow Jesus? Think about um, uh, the the two sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John. You know, so they're in the boat and they're mending nets with their fathers. And they're probably thinking about, you know, do we really want to go into the fishing business? Well, daddy was a fisherman and his father was a fisherman. You know, back to Noah's Ark, they were fishermen. Um, and this this fellow from from a local village in in the galley comes along and says, "Follow me!" And they're like, "Yep, I'm out of here." Um, and, and, and what's their father thinking? And their father is thinking, "My sons have just rejected everything about me. Um, they've rejected my household. They've rejected my job. They've left the the hired men in the boats with me, and my sons are going off and following somebody else. And that looks like hate, and it's not, because." Mm -hmm. What Jesus is actually doing is showing people how love can be even more expansive than it already is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way that God loves us. God loves all of us, regardless of our familial situation or our ethnic group or our race. God loves us all. And Jesus is saying, you do the same thing. But that's going to give the impression that you actually hate your parents. In fact, you don't. And the cool thing here is that later on in Matthew's gospel at the cross, there's Mrs. Zebedee. Like she's thinking, I'm going to go check on these boys. And that's just such a nice uh, all the way back around. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. And and you you also. OK, so one thing I want to add here, I wish everyone could see how you light up as you're sharing the um, scripture, uh, your your personality. Have you have you taken the disc or a temperament test, a behavioral <laughs> test? No. What, what are your, your assessment? Okay. Um, it, it, you're, you mean like a Myers-Briggs or something like that or an Enneagram? <laughs> like what I anticipated you would be today. And it's, it's putting this huge Snoopy smile on my face, I must say, because you are just like lighting up the room here. And okay. I also want to uh, talk a little bit about when Jesus tells them in Matthew to act as if they were slaves. Yeah. Um, you know, right now it's crazy. You can't. And I, I wasn't aware. I'm showing my ignorance here. Um, I had a friend who made a comment about, you know, I got to go slave the day away. And his daughter got so irritated at him for even saying that. Yeah. And. I, I guess I'm really in the dark here. I didn't even know we weren't allowed to um, re even refer to that as, I mean, there's still, you know, trafficking and slavery happening, happening right now today. Uh, so, yeah, give us some insight on this. Right. Well, so when I tried to develop the chapters for this book, uh, there were certain passages that I definitely wanted to write about because people kept complaining about this. What do I do with this? Sell all you have and give to the poor. And what do I do with you have to hate your father and mother? Because those are obvious um, or the wailing and gnashing of teeth and hell stuff. 
but I found particularly since uh, in my teaching, I teach at Vanderbilt Divinity School. I, I train people who want to be Christian ministers how to read the New Testament. Um, and, and every time I got to one of those slavery statements um, uh, or the slaves in the various parables, um, who were either ignored or um, just kind of passed over, or in some translations, the Greek term slave simply, New Testament is written in Greek, the Greek term slave gets translated as servant, so you kind of forget that these are real slaves living in a real first century environment where probably close to half the population of Rome was either enslaved or had been enslaved. Um, and I thought, how, particularly in light of our own um, American racial reckoning, you know, how do we talk about slave language and can we talk about slave language? I'm not a big fan of cancel culture, and I don't think that the way you deal with the subject is by ignoring it or mm -hmm. avoiding it. But I'm also very aware that, that words actually do do a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. So I talk with my students about what Jesus might have thought regarding slavery, and I think he probably thought it was normative. On the other hand, and there's always another hand, and they're both good arguments. To make the claim in the Bible that one is a slave of God, and Paul says that, Paul is slave of, or Moses, a slave of God. Most English translations read servant. Um, it means that God is your master, and if God is your master, you're ultimately free because no human has a control over you. Mm. So in that sense, the slave language can be uh, uplifting and even liberating even to people who are themselves enslaved. You know, my true master is God. Um, or for people who have positions of, of authority, like, you know, the CEO of a Fortune 500, um, to say, I'm really a slave, it take, takes one down a couple of notches mm. and says, you're not really in control of everybody else. Uh, other people might be in control of you. And if you thought of yourself as a slave, whose, whose function it is to take care of other people and to do other people's bidding, then you might be a little bit more hesitant uh, to lord it over other people because you stop thinking of yourself as a lord and you start thinking of yourself as a slave. And yet it makes slavery normative. To tell a CEO be a slave, that's fine. To tell a slave be a slave, that doesn't help very much. Mm. So how do we look at those parables? Um, and, and at the very least, can we use Jesus' slave language to call us to consciousness about our own history of slavery and not overlook them. Um, it, I wrote a book about parables a couple of years ago. Um, and in the parable of the prodigal son, um, it, when it, the prodigal comes home and, and dad makes this giant barbecue and there's music and dancing and whatnot. So the older brother, I mean, Luke 15 here in case somebody wants to look it up. So the older brother, hears the sound of music and dancing. And he calls a slave to ask what's going on. And the slave says, oh, uh, your brother came home safe and sound and, and dad made barbecue uh, and the older brother gets angry and refuses to go in. So uh, eventually it occurs to dad that he forgot to invite the older brother, right? They had enough time to call the band and the caterer, but dad forgot. to invite <laughs> He goes out to the field um, and and it, he's, he tries to reason with the older brother, but the older brother needs to say what what's on what's on his mind. And he says to dad, look, dad. All these years I've been working like a slave for you, except there's a slave standing right there going, no, you haven't. Yeah. But we don't notice the slave. Mm -hmm. So it's as if in this little in this little line about the slave, Jesus is saying or Luke is saying, you know, pay attention to the minor characters. They may have a thought there as well. And when you start thinking of yourself like your friend did about I have to slave away or, you know, on, over at a hot oven or I was slaving away over writing this book, you might want to watch your metaphor. Because there were real slaves out there who were thinking, don't use that term lightly. Mm -hmm.
Mm -hmm. It's really hard. Yeah, and, and you just said something. Pay attention to the, the minor characters. Uh, you're big on that, like wrestling with those passages that uh, we do need to pay attention to some of those details. And, and, and some of it, it confuses us rather than, you know, simply take them as what we've been taught in the past. Because uh, you're right, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up um, going to a definitely a Bible teaching church. And you, we, we bypass a lot of those verses that we might scratch our head on that we might see a little bit as well that's a little tricky and we only hear the part of you know the prodigal son as the main course of we can we can go off we can do crazy things but you know Jesus has these open arms and we can bring it in I never really thought through that yeah here you have servants, you have a slave here in the home. You know, what? what is he feeling? What is he or she, what are they going through? Uh, so why is it important to wrestle with these passages and not just hear them? And, and I've been guilty of this as well, where I'm sitting in church and it's like, oh, I've heard this before. Oh, been there, done that. Rather than, you know, really diving in deep to look at all the words in, in scripture. Right. And so, I found this to be a particular problem with women, by the way. It's like the, this is what you were taught and this is what you ought to believe. And there are certain questions you ought not to ask. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that strikes me as, as bad for everybody. <clears throat> the word Israel traditionally means to wrestle with God. Uh, Jacob gets renamed Israel after wrestling with something, an angel, a demon, his unconscious God, whatever, um, at the Jabbok River. And then at the end, this being says, uh, you have wrestled with God in humans, so therefore you will be called Israel. And part of that is to wrestle with the text, um, which is what we should do with, with any text that we consider to be sacred. Because if we don't, the text is not working with us. Uh, we're, we're simply taking what other people have told us. And that's that's not using our own brains and that's not using the, the gifts of grace that we've been given. <clears throat> the minor characters are there for a reason. Picture. Back then, there weren't any printing presses. There were no computers. There weren't even any typewriters. God, there aren't any typewriters today either, come to think of it. <laughs> so I turned mine into a planter because I wasn't sure what to do with it. There's a philodendron growing in my typewriter. Um, <clears throat> back then, people had to write this stuff down by hand. Um, and they're not going to write down stuff that's that's not important. Um, it's, so it's not just, you know, Jesus was born, Jesus died, hallelujah. There's stuff in between that's worth paying attention to. And pity those poor scribes who were saying, you know, why is this slave here? And so I, oh, it's in the text, let's think about that. Every word is there for a reason. In the Jewish tradition, um, the, the rabbis say, um, not only every word, but every letter is there mm -hmm. for a reason. And the shape of every letter is there for a reason because that's this is divine script. So pay attention to it and then interpret it. Um, and interpret it first for yourself. The best way of starting Bible reading, any sort of Bible reading, is to say, what does this text mean to me? Rather than, what did my pastor tell me it meant? Mm -hmm. What does this mean to me? What am I seeing? But you can't stop there. Because in both the Jewish tradition um, and Jesus, who comes out of that tradition, when he says it's two or three who are gathered in my name, you can't just stop with what does the Bible mean to me? You have to go, what does it mean to my neighbor? And what has it meant to my church tradition or my denomination or my religion? And what have scholars said about it? And what did people in the past say about it? Um, and it's like this endless stream of information. And then you, you get to put your foot in it and you get to participate. 
and perhaps you'll write it down or you'll blog about it or you tweet something and somebody else will say, oh, well, that reminds me of something else. And the stories continue. That's what keeps it alive. That was probably too much information, too. No, when you're saying that, that's what keeps it alive. It makes me, I, I think of times when I've been asked to go speak at a woman's retreat and I'm diving into scripture and you get so caught up in what you're going to say versus what what does this mean to me? And I'm curious, as you were talking about that, do you get to that point where you're so into how am I going to, how am I going to, my my students uh with this scripture how am i going to debate this how you know all those questions do you get away from the personal relationship with jesus well my personal relationship with jesus is an historical and literary one rather than a theological one um, i'm not a christian i don't worship jesus as lord and savior i'm jewish um, i just think he's absolutely fascinating yeah. So that when I get when I'm in a seminar um, with a bunch of students and we're looking at a particular passage and, you know, John or Mark, whatever, um, I, it, both the personal and the academic come together yeah. and I experiment with well, what about this? You know, like this word, this re, this word reminds me of that word um, or this passage reminds me of something uh, that I read in Genesis or something that I read in Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. Um, so I don't think you should park the personal at the door of the academy. Um, I, you know, you come in at, and you bring all your gifts to it. Um, and when my students sometimes say, well, gee, AJ, um, you probably know more about Jesus than we do. And, you know, like we're pastors. I say, the answer is probably yes, I do. Um, and then they say, well, how come how come you're not a believer? Um, and, well, that's a matter of grace. Um, that's not a matter of logic, and that's not a matter of academics or how many books you've read. Um, Paul certainly knew his stuff, but but he doesn't get the point until that road to Damascus experience. Yeah. Right. The two on the road to Emmaus knew their stuff, um, and they don't even get it when Jesus does Bible study with them. They get it in the breaking of bread, this kind of communion or Eucharistic moment. Um, you don't get it by academics. You get it by grace. Um so for me personally, I've never felt that call. And it's not that I'm kind of ignoring it. It would it'd certainly be more convenient uh, to be a Christian in the United States today. But I, th that's not where my beliefs have led me. Yeah. Um, perfectly fulfilled in my own Judaism. And if somebody says, well, you know, you'd be more fulfilled if you believed in Jesus. There's really nothing I can do about that. Um, it's like saying to a Christian, you know, you'd be more fulfilled if you actually read the Quran and then you'd see the fulfillment of all this stuff and you could become Muslim. And the average Christian is going to say, no, I don't think so. That, that doesn't quite work for me. Yeah, I am where I am. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a loving, respectful outsider looking in and saying to my Christian friends, you know, look, um, if you claim to love Jesus, then you probably want to know a little bit more about his culture. Just if you fall in love with somebody, it's like, where did you grow up and who were your parents and what's your favorite food and what's your favorite sports team? You know, do you like beets? I mean, it's stuff like that. So if you want to know about how Jesus would have sounded to the people with whom he first spoke, I can tell you that because I'm an historian. And at the same time, I, I don't have to make Judaism look bad in order to make Jesus look good because I think he looks splendid. So yeah. I can get the history right. Going over to to Egypt and talking with Muslims, and the first time I I was in uh, Indonesia actually uh, before I went to Egypt, and wanting to come over with my perspective and my relationship with Jesus into the Muslim culture, 
And rather than what you just said, um, connecting with what we both know of Jesus, you know, understanding that what they at that point in my life, which was 30 years ago, they knew more about Jesus than I knew about Jesus. And it, it was very insightful for me to be able to sit and listen and see the, the how they see Jesus as, you know, such a strong leader and what he did when he walked here on earth and and really being able to um Oh, what's the, I, I, I don't want to say the project of coming in, like you said, and it's like, but wait, you have to understand this is amazing. Like this relationship with Jesus for me, I, I have to share it with you because it's so phenomenal and it, it fills, you know, such a void of who Christ is in, in my life that um, learning really to listen to what people have to say. And that has been such an eye-opening experience for me in the years of going over there. And like, and just recently, right before COVID, I was in Egypt and the same thing, being able to, to sit there and uh, listen to their perspective. And it, it is interesting, um, you as a, as a scholar, you get to talk about, you know, Jesus all the time, but I, I don't. So to go there and be able to talk about Jesus, um, is fascinating. And we just have a couple minutes and we're, I cannot believe we're at the end of the show here. Um, what would be, um, just one great tip because you, you talk about, you know, there's so many allegories about sheep and Jesus is our shepherd, uh, a tip there. So we don't just like go through life, you know, um, there's an old children's song um, that's it, often sung like ba vacation Bible schools about like, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair. You see, I just want to be a sheep, ba, ba, ba. Um, and, and, you know, with no no disrespect intended to, to sheep, but I, I think God has higher aspirations for us than than to be sheep um, who are who are lovely, but they're not the greatest, uh, you know, the most intelligent creatures that, that God has created. So have higher career aspirations. Um, read the text because the text was meant to be read. In fact, it was meant to be read aloud. Mm. Um, figure out how these words are echoing. Um, mm. Read multiple translations because all translators are traitors anyway. Um, and, and see if, if you read the difference between the New Revised Standard Version and the King James Version, what different messages do you get? Look for the women who were there all the time. Oh my goodness. Um, in the Gospel of Mark in chapter, at chapter 15 at the cross, Mm. Mark says, oh, there were women who were following him since his days in the galley. And what? And then you have to go back to chapter one and put the women in. Um, listen to what people say, um, the words that they use, the, the various echoes of other scriptures that are being made. And the text becomes inexhaustible. Um, I'm 65. As, as I said, I'm, you know, an oldest fabulous, by the way, oldest terrific. Um, and and I've been teaching this stuff for, you know, ha over half a decade because um, I started when I was a teenager. And and I find that every time I look at it, I see something new. And it doesn't matter if you've read the text 100,000 times. Each time you go back because of what happened in your own life or some other text you've just read or what you had for breakfast, you yeah. will see something new in the Bible because it is inexhaustible. Mm. That's what makes it brilliant. But it needs to be read and it needs to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is definitely alive. I'm always blown away by that when you 
dive into scripture and you see it from a new perspective. Uh, and I, I want to thank you again, Dr. Levine, for your guidance. It was an honor to pick your brilliant brain. We are going to have you on again on another episode. So stay with us. Tag, you are it. Our girlfriends are where we get our best tips for life. Find us on Facebook at Girlfriend It. Hit subscribe to iTunes or toginet.com.